That's Richard Buskin. That's Eric Taros. Beatles, naked. demo of everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey straight into the issued version and of course uh theory being and you correct me if i'm wrong richard the monkey in this question being yoko you know one thing about rishi Kesh having been there there's plenty of monkeys actually according to john you know that was the song that he wrote when he was in his love cloud with yoko at the beginning it's kind of interesting being that they hadn't officially gotten together um, you know, dur- during the India trip when he was writing that song. And the notion that some people have sort of gone with that it was about their treatment at the hands of the British press clearly has to be completely wrong. Then maybe the song should have been Me and My Monkey Have Something to Hide. Not quite as catchy because they were hiding what was about to happen. You know, um, they're, we're now in uh, 
in the winter, and we're in uh, northern India, and we're writing songs, and you know, we're still with Cynthia. Cynthia's uh, in the bungalow with me, or with John. Well, she was, because you know, at some point, John decides that he wants to be in his own bungalow without her, which is the writing on the wall for Cynthia and the marriage. I think everybody's relationship ended in India. It, you know, um, I know Jeff Emmerich said that he felt different about the Beatles when they returned from India, that they were angrier, and uh, which is fascinating considering what they went there to do. Yeah, it's, but I, it's a very different Beatles that returns from India to the group that went there. Without a doubt, you know, John's marriage was kind of over by the time they came back. Paul and Jane... That wouldn't be the same for much longer. And George, of course, according to Patty, told her that, you know, from now on, he should be free to basically put it around with whoever he wants. So I think Ringo and Maureen were still solid, but the other three, everything had changed. Yeah. And of course, Ringo and Maureen were the, the, the couple that spent the least time there. I think it was just a little bit over two weeks. Yep, that's right. I wonder what was about in the what was in the water up there. Well, I, actually, I asked myself that often when I was in India. What's in the yeah. water? Yeah, but but I digress. So listen, what's all this about John's White Album? What do you mean? What's it all about, John's White Album? That's what this show is about, right? No, I know, but but how'd you come up with this idea? You know, I I feel kind of silly because this is why I hadn't you know never occurred to me. Uh, ever to say, okay, here's all of John's songs, here's all of Paul's songs, here's George's work, uh, you know, and separate them out as separate albums. I, I'm curious what... Well, here's the thing, you know, George Martin always stated that he thought the White Album could and should have been a much stronger single record. I fundamentally disagree with that. Oh, me too. Yeah, because for me, the White Album shows the full range of their musical influences and their ability to channel those influences, right? And you know, I obviously prefer some tracks to others, but there isn't one that I'd personally discard from that album because I know that if we ever did that sort of thing, then we'd be saying, well, why haven't EMI released it? And we'd have, have to wait for an anthology for it to be issued. So why bother? Yeah, I, I, tend, I completely disagree with uh, George Martin on that one. If anything, I wished it had been a triple album. I wish they had finished off. I mean, Sour Milk Sea, mm. uh, if you listen to that track, to by Jack, given to Jackie Lomax a little bit later, but but basically the the backing band is the Beatles. That is ferocious. That, yeah. that should have been on the album. Yeah. So should have not guilty. Uh, you know, I think that Circles. there was... Uh, I, Circles is probably the lightest uh, yeah, weight of those. And Child of Nature did need to have better lyrics. Dreaming more or less And the dream I had was true Yes, the dream I had was true I'm just a child of nature I don't need much to set me free just a child of nature I'm one of nature's children Sunlight shining in my eyes As I face the desert skies 
Yeah, I agree with him holding that one back. But then Jubilee, or yeah. Junk, mm. uh, as it became known later, was a lovely little tune. Mm. Uh, I, I could have seen that on there. I, I'm i really kind of, uh, yeah, I totally and thoroughly disagree. More, more, more of the White Album. Give me more. Right. And the, so getting back to my reasoning for this show, you know, at the same time, we have John's remark in 1970 for Rolling Stone that the White Album was basically him and a backing band and Paul and a backing band, implying there was no real band unity whatsoever and that George and Ringo were just serving them. I'm sure that went down really well. Now, now, even given the piecemeal approach to many of the recordings, I disagree again. You know, I think that it at least comes over what we hear in the end is great band unity, a great live feel to many of the tracks. And, you know, it's interesting to listen to just John's songs as a single album and Paul's songs as a single album. That's 13 numbers each, if we include Revolution and Hey Jude. And when you listen to them, you know, you hear the contrasting styles, you hear the contrasting personalities coming through. And... I find that really fascinating that, you know, with A Hard Day's Night, for instance, you know, that was the only Lennon and McCartney album, pure Lennon and McCartney, okay? No George compositions, no Ringo compositions, no one else's compositions. And here we have a Lennon Beatles album and a McCartney Beatles album, you know, all together. I mean, how much better does it get? I agree with you, and uh, I just loved this idea, and it got my mind going. And, of course, we do have slight differences. I know that we're very similar in a lot of our approaches, but one thing I would say is I wouldn't do a—once you got me thinking this way, a John Lennon White Album, what would I do? It would be slightly different than your track arrangement. Mm. I would—because I really love uh, a recording they made just as they were departing for India— uh, and now I know some of the recordings they made, they had a little session, obviously, for the Lady Madonna single. And Lady Madonna, to me, does not fit at all on, on a white album mm. of Paul's. Right. But the World Wildlife song, that uh, which was across the universe, but the version of the mix uh, with the sound effects of the birds at the end, to me, that's the leadoff track for me of John's white album.
Jai Guru Day. We're going to go study. We're going to get peace. We're going to get all this stuff that's been lacking in our life spiritually. Mm. And I would end the the John White album with uh, Sexy Sadie, you know, what have you, Maharishi, what have you done? You've made a fool of everyone. So he's back to ground zero again. He's back uh, looking for daddy. And everything else to me, I would sequence in, in between. Really? So you'd have Revolution 9 before Sexy Sadie? Just before. Wow. Yeah, me, I would start off in energetic style. I'd start with everybody's got something tied except me and my monkey. I mean, what a starter, right? You know, high energy, the perfect opener. You got John's, you know, John just lets rip vocally. Music matches his mood. It's totally joyous. And it's totally screw you, you know, you know, sort of drug laced references, sexual innuendo and underpinned throughout by George's lead guitar licks, which I love. Well, and, you know, interesting when John said that he felt the band was like we're we're acting as session musicians. Well, I don't think so. I don't think session musicians can let it rip like they do on that one. I mean, that is one of the most frenetic uh strangely timeless Beatles songs to me. Like that right. one, I think you can slot in in a lot of different time periods, 10, 20 years later, that's still going to perk up some ears and go, wow, what's going on here? Yeah. And 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 another, which also calls to mind, uh, happiness is a warm gun. There is no way a session musicians are going to pull that off. You know, all these different changes. And, you know, you've got to be a pretty tight band to, to pull that one off. Yeah, well, you see, for me, I mean, okay, the Beatles' whole career, one can see as either one big peak or a series of peaks but i don't think it ever got better than the white album i i do think it catches them all of them at the top of their form the top of their ability as musicians as singers as songwriters you know i I think it's peerless that album i i think it's better material i think the one that comes after it um the real one that comes after the one that was released after it in a sense abbey road to me is the most modern slick and accessible I find the White Album to be still enough experimentation and edginess and rawness and weird stuff going on that you can keep coming back to uh, as as a scholar like we are years and years later and still find some new texture, something new, something to borrow from. Whereas, uh, so I, I I hesitate to call it a peak. To me, my favorite Beatle album will always be Revolver. Uh, it, it just to me, it's astounding that they could do that at that part of their career but i kind of look at the white album to me was always revolver part two i mean it's just how it felt to me yeah it it had the most weird variants and and nobody's range of material was greater than than what john produced for that album as far as styles go yeah he's on fire i mean paul is as well but you know john is absolutely on fire and for me, you know, I can listen to the Plastic Ono Band album or Walls and Bridges or Imagine and, you know, any amount of work, as you said, the Revolver. But the one I keep coming back to is the White Album with the Beatles. And in terms of John, when I do just isolate his tracks and do John Lennon's White Album, that's most likely my favorite collection of recordings ever. Having opened with Everybody's Got Something to Hide, I then pretty much go with the running order of John's tracks on the album. So next up, Dear Prudence, which has grown to be one of my favourite Beatles and Lennon tracks.
I love how it keeps building. The second verse, you have that prominent bass line and the falsetto backing vocals, those kind of strange-sounding backing vocals. I think it's hypnotic and beautiful. It is yeah. my favorite John Lennon song on the album, actually. Yeah, and the third verse you is then overlaid with George's recurring guitar lick. And then probably my favourite drumming on any Beatles track, and it's Paul. Yes, that, well, I think that was when Ringo was having a TT. Yeah, and I, I have to say, you know, Paul's drumming on it. I mean, people may spot the flaws, but I just love it. I think it, it, the feel is fantastic. I think Prudence is actually one of the finest productions of any Beatles track as well. I just love, as I said, the way it builds and builds. And then we get to that point where there's a kind of cacophony of sound. And, yeah. and then it clears and resolves itself when we again hear him singing, the sun is up, the sky is blue. It's just fantastic. It's a complete song in every way. You know, the thing I love about Prudence the most is that sort of that descending kind of sound as the song is fading away, the guitar picking. Yeah. 
uh, which uh, reminds me, if you listen to the ending passage, as, as the song is fading out of one of George's solo tracks called The Art of Dying on his uh, All Things Must Pass album, I, I think they bear a striking resemblance to one another. As we all know, George had that song hanging around since 66, so I kind of wonder if this new picking style that John learned up in India from um, from uh, Donovan, I wonder, was was that song that George had maybe played for them and got rejected, was that in the back of his head? Or you know, did George copy John? I heard Prudence in my head constantly uh, when I was walking around Maharishi's abandoned compound. I, I literally did. That was that was the soundtrack for me. I just could hear it everywhere I walked. And then, so, okay, going through the tracks, you know, Glass Onion, which right from the opening drum break has got such great energy. I told you about strawberry peels You know the place where nothing is real well, here's another place you can go Where everything flows Looking through the bed back tulips To see how the other half lives Looking through a glass onion The continuing story of Bungalow Bill I mean, I I love how a scathing indictment of hunting is delivered in the form of a sort of children's sing-along. You know, <laughs> I, I never usually associate John with subtlety, more with the sarcasm that's coming through here, the, the piss-taking, basically. Well, that one, one of my themes you're going to hear throughout this series is that rock and roll, a lot of it in the 60s, uh, was geared to kids. You know, Yellow Submarine yeah. or... You know, there's a million records, but I, the, the subversiveness of that I loved, which is he's in a very subtle way bringing the kids in. You know, here's Jaunty Ringo, kind of very prominent in the mix, uh, and he's trying to teach us. It's a, that's I call that John Sesame Street song because it's <laughs> subversive. It's yeah. he's 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 drawn you in, but now he's teaching you the evils of hunting. All the children sing. Little aside note, I just, uh, you know, when you go to the ashram now, which is, you know, a couple of miles outside of Rishikesh Center, um, one of the chilling things as you turn the corner to walk onto this abandoned compound, and I do mean it's abandoned, there's like one sleepy attendant and very few people that I ever saw there in the two days I spent, there's a big sign that says, Welcome to the Tiger Preserve. <laughs> so 
There's wild tigers running around there. Yeah. So so Bungalow Bill, I always thought in the song he had to like get on the train or whatever with his mum and go south and go find tigers. I think he literally could have apparently gone out the back door and just gone into the woods looking for them. <laughs> Happiness is a warm gun. For me, you know, if there's one number to sum up the genius of John Lennon, this is it. It's so unique. She's not a girl who misses much. Oh, yeah. She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand like a lizard on a window pane. The man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots. With his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime. A soap impression of his wife, which he ate and donated to the National Trust. I'm going down, down to the bits that I left up town. I need a fix, cause I'm going down. Mother Superior jumped the gun. 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 Mother Superior jumped the gun Three songs rolled into one, laced with eroticism throughout, as well as drug references. You know, this is when he's really getting into the relationship with Yoko. And uh, so we have those sort of lines like lying with his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime and Mother Superior jumped the gun. We got the song's title and we got the bang, bang, shoot, shoot backing vocals and I feel my finger on your trigger. What's really interesting is in that last verse... You can either listen to it as non-stop sexual references, or you can listen to it as a song about a gun. All of those lines work both ways. I mean, very, very clever. Well, he was the master of double entendre, and I think 
I found it compelling. I had never noticed it before, but during uh, one of his last interviews, Lennon referred to that as he was very proud of the song, you could tell, still at the end of his life. And he said that was his history of rock and roll, and that if you listen to all the different movements and shifts, that these were all uh, the rock and roll idiom that he identified with, used, felt was significant in his life. And he very subtly kind of, that's, it's like a history lesson of rock and roll structure and riff. Uh, but you talk about lines. Uh, one of my favorite lines that used to confuse me was, you know, a soap impression of his wife, which he ate and donated to the National Trust. I was in Liverpool years later in a conversation with another Beatle person, and we were talking about Liverpudlian slang. And uh, he goes, yeah, donating to the National Trust. You know what that is, mate, right? And it wasn't really about the Beatles song. He just was mentioning that as slang. And I said, I, I giving money to the government? I, I don't know. <laughs> No, mate, no. That's when uh, that's Liverpudlian for you know taking a public dump, you know, dropping a deuce. <laughs> and so, to me now, I can never hear the song the same. And you know, for our listening audience, maybe you'll never hear the song the same way again either. And of course, the irony is that these days the National Trust is in charge of taking care of the McCartney and Lennon childhood homes and running the tours. Uh, you know, Deschamps said there is no accident. Somehow, psychically, I think John knew. Yeah, really. So anyway, Happiness is a Warm Gun, uh, just brilliant for me. Incredible vocal by John, showing off his range, not just in terms of hitting the high and low notes, but also the expression, you know, the range of expression in that song. It's just amazing. The only negative for me is the sad irony of that song's title. Yeah, that and uh, what and once again I get into uh, uh, psychic things. Um, what was what was in his mind that he almost knew? Because then you go next year to uh, to Abbey Road, and what is he saying? Uh, you, you never really get this until you isolate isolate the different tracks. But if you isolate the tracks of "Come Together," where you hear that shoot at the beginning, that's actually John saying "Shoot me." Yes, it is. Shoot me. That's it's right. like, oh my God, it's very tough. We heard to that think. in episode one, didn't we? I believe we did. So, <laughs> up next, I'm So Tired. Well, you know, that song to me is is part two of I'm Only Sleeping, which is, yeah. once again, one of my top three John Lennon songs. I'm so tired. I'm feeling so upset. Although. It's just interesting how he shifts between sort of angry frustration and childlike helplessness. The two sides of John. I think there's some fun things in there. Well, there's some references, too, I think, about John's growing substance issues. Mm. 
You know, I, it's been three weeks, I'm going insane. You know, he can't sleep. Why can't he sleep? Is it the drug intake, or is it he's missing Yoko, or, or what is it? Or he's obsessed with Yoko, which might be part of it. We can, it, it. There's such a feeling that Yoko's already part of the picture. When they're writing these songs, she really isn't. Yeah. She is in the recording process, in a sense. But, uh, yeah, that is a... Once again, his the conviction in his vocals uh, haunts me. I mean, he really... That that's a song that's pretty much impossible to cover. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how are you ever? You're gonna sound like oh, I'm so tired. It's like you could you'd have to <laughs> Vegas it. I mean, you can't. <laughs> no thanks. I'll leave that one to you when we retire. <laughs> when I do my Vegas act, this side of the room, <laughs> that side of the room. Oh yeah, right. So, Ju- I mean, you talk about haunting and conviction, Julia. I mean, you know, that is haunting. It's beautiful. It's sad. And what an incredible tribute, right, to one of the two Beatle mothers who died without having any notion at all that her son would become so famous around the world and actually help to change that world. Half of what I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you, Jude stunning it's a stunning song he does you know go back to that uh in a much more chilling fashion uh you know with with the plastic ono band album yeah. which to me is kind of part two of the white album the the, the brutality and simpleness of some of the songs yes there. yes but the thing i find interesting about julia as a song is is it is too it's a it's a very schizophrenic song to me um because uh it ostensibly is just about his his dead mother Julia, who died when in a road accident when he was sixteen. But listen to some of those words: "Ocean child, call me." Yeah, that's y- Yoko. That's Yoko. Yoko means ocean child. Yes, right. I believe that is the Japanese. Are you listening, Suge? My buddy Suge in Tokyo. Uh, <laughs> if, correct me. You know, I know how to say about five things in Japanese. Usually, it's ordering beer and and which way to the ballpark and sushi. This is your Japanese lesson. And when you go to Japan, futatsu biru, uh, which means two two beers. Oh, excellent. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, I just thought you'd know that. You'd like to know that. You see, this is an educational program, Richard. I just wanted to say it's a family show, and uh, we don't drop the FNS bomb very often. It's all about education. Speak for yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, in Julia, John endows her, doesn't he? He endows his mother with a sort of ethereal quality. 
And as you say, with the ocean child reference, he lets her know that he's found his soulmate. And it's just, it's so personal. It's so extremely personal, that song. And yet he's sharing it with the world in a very touching and Lennonish way. And in the future, though he's not with her yet, what did John call Yoko? He only called her Yoko when they were in interviews. The rest of the time, it was mother. Mother. Can you hear me, so, mother? Uh, so once again, some really interesting. John Lennon is the most complex rock and roller that I can think of and personality and life-wise. So um, just another beautiful layer of, of a glass onion. And then we go on to Year Blues, uh, another great vocal delivered with that, you know, in-your-face, couldn't-give-a-toss attitude. Uh, <laughs> I thought, you know, the instrumental break on that, I don't know what you think about this, but I think it's got a very sexually rhythmic feel. Black across my mind, boom is from my soul, feel so suicidal, even kind of crude raw sounding guitar solo kicks in it's almost like orgasmic that's an interest i you know and i i would boy you just left the door open for me to really tease you uh, oh, but i won't please do. Uh, on, <laughs> i know you'll love it um no i think that one to me you know famously helter skelter was the song they were trying to get this down and dirty you know mm. uh, having read the who had just recorded something super dirty and filthy sounding to me that's the dirty filthy simple uh as chicago electric blues as john could get you know it sounds very kind of choppy and rough and i mean i i I didn't get the sexual element out of it so much but i did get this sort of vision of john lennon wandering into some south side bar and with a pickup band and just sort of staccato chunking his way through this mm. this sort of blues half in the bag you know half drinking or something and uh i love it as it as in a sense to me it's like the most low-tech sounding recording on the album which i think is yeah. great which is what it needs yeah i mean you know ending with him off mic singing the last verse uh, yeah exactly the, like you said i can't i don't give a toss i don't care uh, yeah uh but uh, but also i i think and you and i, I think we're talking about the title thing you know here in america we didn't thoroughly understand the phonetic spelling of of your blue you know people over here thought it was a joke your blues you know would pronounce it that way instead of it's your blues it's your right, blues right. you know it's just like I, a, I never thought of that you know i never thought of that until recent years and it suddenly just clicked i never gave any thought to the title of that song and then suddenly 
it occurred to me, it's your blues, isn't it? Yeah, like, yes, I'm lonely. Want to die. You know, just like everything yeah. is taken, boiled down to the bottom, you know, just to the bare essence. Yeah. And is, once again, now in retrospect, we have so much reverence. How much of it was sort of a dismissive piss take? I, I really don't. You never know with John. You know, was was he was he embracing the blues boom, or was he really saying that? Ah, yeah, that's a piece of piss. Watch, you can do it in ten minutes. Yeah. Oh dear, I said a bad word. Now, just two seconds ago, I'm talking about a family show. Well, you talk about bad words and family shows. Sexy Sadie, okay, which finds Lennon in prime form, sarcastic, stinging, threatening. The working lyrics were way more aggressive and insulting. I mean, in a very early take of the song in the studio, he refers to the Maharishi as, well, let's just say it's a word that starts with T and W and ends with T, and also the C word. Not pulling back here at all. I mean, foreshadowing Paul's treatment on how do you sleep a few years later. Okay. I'm still trying to figure out what those words are. (laughs) Oh, well. I'll write it down for you, Eric. All right, please. My virgin eyes. (laughs) So let's move on to Revolution 1, which for me is like Lennon in an unusually laid-back mood, especially regarding that subject matter. You know, there's plenty of subtle layering, which adds up to the whole with the sort of brass stabs and the guitar licks and those backing vocals and the heavy breathing. To me, a bit too slick, actually. It's, It's clever. It's interesting to listen to, especially on headphones, but a little bit too slick. I I prefer the single version. least favorite song i think on the album to tell you the truth to me it is kind of vegasy and and kind of like 
you know, if you go talking about Chairman Mao, I mean, I can hear, you know, Engelbert doing that. You're, so ba- you're back in your Vegas mode again. This is really getting disturbing. Disturbing is a good thing. You say it as if it's a bad thing. Uh, well, y- you know what I'm saying is there's very little disappointment on the White Album. If anything, I, that's one I felt was filler. I mean, to me, I mean, I like it a lot more now. Obviously, it gives you a contrasting view. It's But it's like the Quaalude version of something that is so intense, as John Lennon would say, you know, a heavy record that gets made into ice cream. I'm really quite worried that I'm going to see you one of these days in Vegas in a showroom in your white latex disco suit, you know, doing these sort of <laughs> la- assuming... la- lounge versions of the White Album. You are assuming that I haven't already done that. Oh, please, please. <laughs> uh... Hey, listen, I got to make a living, dude. You know, I mean, it's the way it is. Cry, baby, cry. We all want to. Pictures of Kikori Always smiling and arriving Late for tea The Duke was having problems With a message at the local Beverly Again, magnificent, right? I mean, surreal fantasy in the best Lewis Carroll tradition. That's, you know, John's childhood, Alice Through the Looking Glass. And and I have to say, also one of my favorite John vocals, not, you know, the trademark rock aggression, but beautifully understated delivery, particularly towards the end. And I also even like, you know, Paul's refrain at the end, the can you take me back? Oh, that is beautiful I, I actually that's one of my favorite little like you say the hidden track the the extra bonus bit how wonderful it would have been if he'd finished that or if he did finish it yeah you know there's all those little bits kind of kicking around the other thing about cry baby cry uh tell me because you know a bit more about these things technically speaking uh it sounds a little bit different to me the production wasn't that where there was a change in engineers or something around that time? Yeah, we've got, you know, Ken Scott there um, because Jeff Emmerich walked from the sessions, had enough of the aggro going on in the studio. And so yeah. Ken, Ken Scott came in and you do hear a slight change, which we'll be discussing a little later on in this show. Yes. 
next, I do insert an extra track into the playlist on John's White album, and that is the single version of Revolution, because I think also we should include Hey Jude in Paul's list. Why not? You know, yeah, Thoroughly, uh, uh, yes. I mean, it was still a very honorable thing that they felt that uh, people who bought an album should get all new material and that singles and albums were different from one another. But yes, I, those tracks are completely part of the White Album, and how could they be anything but... You say you want a revolution Well, you know We all want to change the world You tell me that it's evolution Well, you know we all want to change the world But when you talk about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out Don't you know it's gonna be All right All right All right All right, 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 all right. Hamburg rock and roll put through the late 60s grinder. We got that balls to the wall fuzz guitar intro, which... I know a lot of people already know it was directly swiped from Pee Wee Creighton's 1954 single, Do Unto Others. You familiar with that? I've not. No, I'm going to go check it out, though, oh, well, because it's so easy to do it now. Well, check it out here. He sure seems to be embracing electric blues on the fast version. Yeah, and you know, this whole thing of ripping off Pee Wee Creighton, is it a rip-off or is it a homage? You know, I, I think it's wonderful. You know, you can take your choice on that. I, I think it's a stunning, turbocharged opening to a heavy-duty band performance. Oh, yeah, I've never, you know, bought into this sanctity of, you know, I think everything, there's only eight notes, right? And I yeah. think... I think you, uh, you know, there's enough reconstruction. Their whole history, if you want to play that, we maybe we should do a show sometime where this comes from that. But you can do that with every single band. Forget the Beatles. And, yeah. uh, let's talk about Coldplay sometime, you know. Right. Yeah. Or Oasis. I personally don't have a problem with Oasis. I think no. that they did pay homage to the Beatles and they did it in a very clever way. You know, it was quite ingenious. It's not easy to do that. No, no, not at all. So what's next? Well, next, the closer for me is Revolution 9, which I've grown to love down the years, and which actually I think we can discuss with our first guest today, our resident musicologist, Alan Cozen. He of the New York Times and assorted other esteemed publications. And uh, Alan's going to be joining us, you know, fairly regularly on our shows. And so why don't we talk to him about his take on john's white album in terms of john's evolution as a songwriter and where he was at in 1968 
Okay, so in in 1968, I think he was actually a bit of a mess, and I don't mean that pejoratively. I, I just mean that he was, in some ways, all over the place, and and that probably is a result of the first part of the question, where he had gone from you know simple sort of bluesy, love me do kind of things, and and, and more pop oriented like in please please me but still writing you know fairly conventional songs i mean i i think that early on his focus and his originality was more in lyric writing than in the musical side of it the musical side was you know it was great stuff but it was in the style that was pop at the time um by the time of rubber soul he was beginning to broaden out a little more and in revolver he's bringing in uh, electronic ideas you know wanting it to sound like the you know guy on the mountaintop or the uh you know singing through well as it turned out a leslie speaker um but uh you know he's supposed to be the dalai lama for some reason he focused on that as as the image he from, wanted from the highest mountain top the highest mountain top and you know and plus then we have we have strawberry fields where all kinds of things are going on both lyrically and musically that is really an extraordinary piece and yet when he gets to pepper he either tunes out or claims to have tuned out. I think he claimed retrospectively to have tuned out. Um, and as evidence, he cites the fact that Good Morning, Good Morning was written from a, a Corn Flakes commercial and and Mr. Kite was written from uh, that, that poster. And he's saying, see, I wasn't really making an effort. This was Paul's thing. Um, but Mr. Kite is an extraordinary song. I mean, he may have gotten the lyrics from a poster, but the song itself is pretty incredible. Um, and, and even the lyrics. I mean, the fact that, you know, he t he's taken those lyrics from the poster, but how he's worked them into the song, I think, is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and that was a very, uh, I think that's a very pop art sensibility of the moment. Also, the, the idea of the cornflakes box, you know, it's a very Warhol-esque thing in a sense to... to Absolutely, uh, yeah. You know. And his dismissiveness about the Pepper stuff also doesn't take into account A Day in the Life, which, um, you know, along with Strawberry Fields from the beginning of those sessions is... You know, just one of the most incredible, incredible songs that pop music has given us, really. You know, uh, not just the Beatles, but, it, you know, just as a, a piece of music. It's extraordinary. Now, by the time he gets to the White Album, um, he's come through the Pepper period where he was sort of disowning his own stuff. They went to India. They sat around in the ashram with Maharishi and let's not forget Magic Alex. <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, you know, and they were all writing songs. I mean, they, they had never before that we know of in the weeks before going into the studio to make an album, they never sat down and said, let's record 27 demos. You know, that just didn't happen. You know, right. um, we get demos here and there, but they seem to have been done one at a time. And, you know, yes. and of those 27 demos, they weren't even all used for the White Album. Um, and there were things on the White Album that weren't demoed. So it's a huge burst of creativity. I mean, when they went in to do Pepper, 
they had Strawberry Fields and they had Penny Lane and they had, uh, you know, when I'm 64, Paul dragged out from his, you know, childhood, basically. Um, you kind of get the impression that those sessions were booked and they weren't entirely sure what they were going to do until they began working. With the White Album, completely different thing. They're walking in with 27 songs to start with and then coming up with new ones during the sessions, too. So, and, and that, I mean, I always attributed that to whatever they went through in India, you know, meditation or just being away. Um, I've talked to Mark Lewison about this and he feels that it was really just from being away. You know, they, when they were in London, there were too many distractions or else they were on tour or whatever else was going on. But, um, yeah, they never had that kind of extended period away from everything ever since they'd become Beatles. Well, yeah, and, and not only that, it's where they were away, because to this day, there's not a lot to do up there. I mean, you know, there's it's a very remote place, so you're either meditating or you're writing. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's probably why the ashram was there. I mean, you know, he would have wanted his his uh, uh, followers to be focused just on meditation, um, while he was focused on other things. Well, <laughs> well, that's what Alex said. <laughs> According to Magic Alex, yeah. who, uh, yeah. Now, let's have your appraisal of John's White Album. I mean, if you were arranging that album, would you be going with the same running order that we have on the album and then just, you know, tagging on Revolution near the end? What would you do? Uh, the first song of his that we get if we're going chronologically through the album as it appears is Dear Prudence, which yes. isn't bad. I'm not sure it's the best opening track. I suppose if I had to find an opening track, I might um, I might do Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey. Um, just yeah. because it's more of a rocking track. Um, It'll wake you it, right up. Yeah. And then I was thinking also, out of sheer perversity, uh, maybe happiness is a warm gun <laughs> could be the opening. <laughs> well, um, I'm glad you uh, just want to key in on that song for a second, because Lennon was famous for liking that song. And I remember in the Playboy interviews, for example, he talks about it and he called it his history of rock and roll in one song. And I was wondering what you thought about that, Alan. Is it, Do you understand what he's saying there, that these different oh, movements... Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a there's definitely an element of that. I mean, there's a bit of doo-wop, and there's um, sort of a bit of quasi-blues, not quite blues. Uh, there's several things. I mean, here's one thing that I have always found a little bit strange about Happiness is a Warm Gun, however. Um Fast forward to Abbey Road, and you have John saying, well, you know, everyone likes Psy 2, but from my point of view, Psy 2 is just a big cheat because it's a bunch of song fragments that are just sort of stuck together. And um, <clears throat> what is happiness as a warm yeah. gun? <laughs> but, Don't confuse him with facts. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's song fragments stuck together. There's not much question about that, but they're stuck together really brilliantly. You know, you listen to that song and 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 you think, yeah, there's like this is a kind of a wild way to write a song, but it kind of works. It's just so quirky and uh you know, uh, whereas other things like, you know, Dear Prudence is a pretty conventional song. And you have in Dear Prudence and also Julia, which is also fairly conventional, you've got um, John's brand new finger-picking technique that Donovan taught him in Rishikesh. 
Yeah. Um, so this uh, this album, and I don't know about particularly John's contributions, but since we're looking at John, I mean the the influence of Rishikesh is all over this thing. You know, we're talking about how John had, you know, from his point of view, nothing to contribute to Pepper, so was writing um, off of Cornflakes commercials. And yet, you add these songs together, including the Revolution single, and you have 49 minutes of music. That definitely is an album on its own. I mean, Pepper, which was their longest album to date, is only 37 minutes. So this is... You know, this is quite a lot. And 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 stylistically, he's all over the place. That's in a way what I meant by, you know, a mess. Um, because you've got blues, you've got, you know, blues. I mean, your blues is more bluesy than anything he had done before, even when, you know, he, he would talk about Love Me Do is basically a bluesy number. But your blues is, at this point, sort of the classic um, English take on American blues that was getting to be very popular at the time, you know, with cream coming up and, and, and that kind of thing. And everybody's got something uh, to hide except me and my monkey also, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a track a lot of people bypass, but there's, um, there's some really kind of interesting guitar work in it. And then all of the, the sort of noisy bell-like percussion. Oh, that, that's you know, marvelous. Yeah. I, I think that's a great example of of the the demo tape is such an underwhelming experience, you know. It kind of reminds me of Dig It or something later on, and yet that song just comes to life. I think in Lennon's own appraisal, uh, he used to say that there was great songs and great records. I find that to be a great record of a not-so-great song. I mean, right, yeah. And, and you know, when the percussion comes in and you've got all the clanging going on, I mean, it, it, it's almost as if a fire bell has gone off, you know. It's, it's uh, there's just, they knew how to create a kind of oral, that's A-U-R-A-L excitement, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and and they were getting better at it all the time. I mean, you know, Pepper is packed with that. I mean, that, that album is just sort of a kaleidoscope. And, and the White Album is a lot more sedate by comparison, in a way, and yet you still see a lot of things like everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey and and the sounds that it brings to the table uh, and, and that's not even getting near revolution 9 john was definitely contributing to that kind of variety on this album i mean you look at his tracks and and they really are all over the place you i mean you described it as him being you know a bit of a mess why do you employ that word as opposed to saying he's being eclectic um yeah, because, <laughs> uh, well, I did say I don't mean it pejoratively, so it probably right. was just because I hadn't thought of eclectic. Um, but, but, <laughs> but I'm thinking, I guess I'm thinking a mess too in the sense of, you know, eclectic implies intentionality in a way, whereas with this stuff, I, I'm just thinking of it as being unruly. You know, yeah. it's um, it's just John deciding for this song, I'm doing this and for this song, I'm doing this. And I mean, in a way, that's brilliant, because if you want to write a song like Julia, it really has to have the music that Julia has. I mean, the 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 match between 
lyric and music on all of these tracks is really exactly what it should be. It's, you know, yeah. it's just perfect. And and you guys haven't mentioned one of the more interesting and certainly the outlier of John's compositions on this album, which of course is number nine, number nine, number nine. I think Lennon gets credit for something that might be more of a, a McCartney thing, because, you know, McCartney right. went out of his way, even at the time, to say, well, you know, I brought some loops to the studio, his right. loops, you know. And I, I kind of thought that Revolution Number no. 9 to me is like John saying, okay, I'm going to do my own music concrete here, and I'm going to outdo that, you know, poppier version that Paul had. Right. That that could be. I mean, and, and, the, and they were Paul's loops on Revolver, but they were used on John's song, which kind of is an interesting thing in a way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you don't see him doing them on his songs, and yet I, I think his um, stash of unreleased tapes is probably packed with experiments of, that we haven't gotten to hear. Um, well, and, and the and the payback was that while he was away, John, George, and Yoko work on Revolution Nine, something that Paul would have loved to have been involved in and wanted to initiate mm-hmm. really in the past. And then he comes back, and they've done that. It's pretty much done. Right. And and then he's not sure about it being included on the White Album. You can kind of understand it. Yeah. But Revolution Number 9, I mean, for for me, it's really a special track. Um, you know, it's uh, I, I think it sort of edges into my other life as a classical music critic. Because, I mean, there were many, many nights when I went out to hear music that was not that different from that, you know, in, yeah. in certain avant-garde circles, you know, downtown in New York, and even though it was like 30 years later, um, you know, this there's a, a, a very time-honored tradition of making this kind of electronic piece, which sounded strange to us when we were kids and we got it on a rock album, but, um, you know, what, what he was doing here, and it, and this is this is the thing. I mean, I don't know that John ever totally looked at it this way, but I see the three revolutions as a trilogy. Um, and I see them almost as if they were an intentional trilogy, although he's never come out and said this was an intentional trilogy. But what you have is Revolution 1, which I think is the first thing they recorded for the White Album, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, and he wanted it out as a single, and they all thought it was a bit too slow and acoustic. We've now all heard the long outtake of, of, of the whole thing, and they just keep playing and playing and, you know, jamming along, and it gets a bit weird. I mean, right on that take, you've got Yoko saying, you become naked. I'm not sure what even happened. Did she just wander into the studio while they were playing that that play out on that take and just start saying stuff, you know? Um, lucky, lucky Ringo didn't wander in and talk about the swans <laughs> that are in the park. <laughs> so, you know, and so then they, he, he starts adding stuff to it and adding more to it and then finally just sort of snips it off um, after where the fade-out would be on Revolution 1, and he's got this this thing he's making. Well, what is he making? He's making really a a portrait of the revolution 
as it happens, you know, and we know from from the song revolution that he is a little ambivalent about revolution. I mean, everyone is calling for revolution. Everyone is protesting the Vietnam War and all kinds of other issues. Um, and there are demonstrations and there are takeovers and there are sit-ins. And there's, there was this whole idea that, you know, we're going to have the revolution and everything's going to be better. And John is, in a way, taking a, a somewhat more mature view of, you know, if, if you look at revolutions traditionally, um, with the possible exception of the American Revolution. But look at the French Revolution. I mean, that descended into complete chaos. And, yeah. you know, uh, look at the Russian Revolution. You know, a lot of revolutions are very, very dangerous things for a lot of people. Um, and I think he was seeing that. And that's why he's saying when you talk about destruction you can count me out and then in out and then in out and in and then revolution one which is made you know not for musical reasons i.e to be part of this trilogy that i'm talking about but really because he still wants revolution on a single and he wants it to be more like what the others are thinking a single should sound like so now it's electrified but by electrifying it you're taking this whole idea about whether or not we should have a revolution whether or not you should count him in or out when there's violence and you're making it uh, a more sort of vibrant statement. You know, now you're seeing, now we're getting close to the possibility of there actually being a revolution instead of acoustic guitars and everyone just sitting back laconically singing. We now have electric guitars and that the intro of the song just sort of, you know, blaring out these repeated chords and it's more dangerous. I mean, it's a, it's a song that, it gives the impression of, of, of greater danger because you're getting near the revolution, although I'm not sure that's what we thought when we heard the single. Hmm. Um, when we heard the single, we hadn't heard Revolution 1 yet, you know, that this was the first thing we'd heard. Um, then you get to Revolution 9, you know, in the single, he's just saying, count me out. On the first one, he said, count me out in. He didn't quite know get to the single, it's more dangerous, okay, count me out. And then you get to Revolution 9, and that is the revolution, and it's chaos, and it's, you know, you hear the sound of flames, you hear, you know, people shouting, you know, hold that line, okay, it's from a football game, but, you know, football is is a, a, a certain kind of warfare too, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, tri it's tribal, definitely in England and in Europe with the fans, it's very tribal. And he would refer to football matches a lot. He would say that, you know, their situation, uh, you know, being out on tour, uh, kind of making excuses for the girls, you know, being able to scream their head off. He goes, well, you know, the lads go to a football match and they're screaming their heads off, you know. So, so he seemed to, something about football stuck in his head. Uh, even and, as, and, he, and he referred to the Beatles, you know, stadium concerts as bloody tribal rights. Yeah. 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 So, you know, Revolution Number 9, if you listen to it as a portrait of a revolution unfolding and all the big question marks and all the danger and all the not knowing what's going to happen and, uh, you know, it, it, it really kind of works as a tone poem in that way, you know, more than a lot of music concrete pieces I know work. 
Um, so I think of the three of them as a sort of like a, a triptych, you know, um, and and you could, if you wanted to make it a four panel work, you could take the live version from the Smothers Brothers where he yeah. um, returned to Count Me Out in. And uh, and they have the shooby doo vocals added to the fast version. In the shooby doo yeah. So, but, but it's funny because according, you know, to your thesis here, when it gets more dangerous, when it becomes more imminent, Lennon's a coward. He wants out. Well, he's a right. peacenik, or he's he's forming the peacenik thing. You know, I mean, I think that's part of it. I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Alan. You know more about this stuff than I do. I always suspected there was a link between Two Virgins, the Two Virgins project, which he'd done back in May, uh, but hadn't wasn't going to be released until after the White Album. Right. Um, but I kind of see a link between those sonic experiments, I'll be kind, um, you know, that he got better at it and, and that, you know, Revolution 9 is a more exciting uh, version of what he was doing with Yoko, in a sense. Right. It's also a more labor-intensive version than what he was doing with Yoko. With, with with Yoko, he was just sort of mixing sound sources and playing with, you know, speeds. And, you know, it was a really comparatively simple thing. And you, and you got the impression that it, um, that it fit his bill of, you know, doing music like a journalist. You write it, you put it out. That's yeah. all yeah, there is. He, he was also labor-intensive with Yoko in other ways. Yeah. And Revolution Nine. I mean, they 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 had you know. I think there were four or five distinct sessions. You know, not counting the mixing when they were doing things to make this track, um, and they were running through the EMI library pulling out discs. I mean, some of them classical discs. And so you have a bit of um, a, a piano piece, Schumann Symphonic Etudes. Then you have, um, you know, the, that choral sound that you hear in the foreground is backwards choral sound, and that's from a Vaughn Williams piece called "Oh, Clap Your Hands." And then there is that big orchestral crescendo that you hear, which is the end of the Sibelius Seventh Symphony. So, you know, he was just going all over the place. And, you know, not to mention the test tape of... Number nine, 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 number nine. Then George and John going down into the studio and either ad-libbing or reading things. It's, 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 it's kind of hard to tell, you know, financial imbalance, the Watusi. <laughs> yeah, it's a twist. twist. <laughs> you know? Take this, so. brother. May it serve you well. 
I'm not sure whether John really thought of it as, you know, while he was making it, as we're going to try and evoke the terror and, you know, disintegration of a society in revolution. I mean, he may have just been trying to make a fun sound piece, and he may have just called it Revolution 9 because the basis of the track comes from revolution. You know, if it didn't come from that, it might have been called who knows what, you know. Uh, <laughs> Number nine monkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's interesting what you say, Alan, because I've often wondered if this was like preconceived and mapped out. I, I actually doubt that. I don't think it was kind of storyboarded as such. Um, but I do think it's a sort of organized chaos. I, I don't think they were just throwing random things in as they went along. Yeah, I, I, th I think there is a kind of logic going on here. Would you agree? Yeah, there is. And and in fact, to prove that you can make anything into, not only into music, but you can make anything show the narrative that you want. Um, back in the days when the Paul is Dead thing was a current uh, issue, um, and radio stations were doing uh, specials about all the clues of, of Paul is dead. You know, the revolution mm. number nine backwards, number nine turned me on dead man. Um, one station, I think it was WNEW FM in New York had a really good overview program in which they included revolution number nine as a story, except the story that they felt Revolution Number no. 9 told, at least in this program, was the story of Paul crashing his car, waiting for the ambulance, and even, you know, being operated on. It's like, you know, his, these are his sort of um, disoriented thoughts as he's under anesthetic and wow you know, that's a stretch just, huh? well you know and they're they're um they mention um you know hitting a light pole and right after that he wants to, he went to see the surgeon you can hear john say and then they're saying that you know other things are you know what paul would be thinking at a sort of stream of consciousness and they quoted uh you know my wings are broken and so is my hair so is it was say hair or head it's hard to hear um and right after that you hear the sound of flames um so you know you can you can make a piece of music into, in a way, whatever narrative you want, but this one has a title and it's related to two other versions of a song about revolution. So it's not unreasonable to think of it as the portrait of the revolution that he's singing about in the two versions of the song. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, which of the compositions do you find the most interesting? Uh, from as John as the um, writer on that on that album on just on that album, it's really hard to say because I really do love Revolution Number no. Nine, and I, I'm probably one of the few people on the planet um, willing to say that out loud or even think. Oh, it. I, well, I'll <laughs> second you on that. Oh, okay. Actually, in the in the field of of electronic music and music concrete, forgetting about. The Beatles, forgetting about anything else, if you're just looking at music concrete, that is, for me, one of the best examples there is, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of odd because there are people who've devoted their life to it, um, and this is something that he probably did sort of on a whim, and it nevertheless is more durable. Alan, thank you for that. 
Alan is adding such a highbrow element to our show, which I think we desperately need. Again, the, speak uh, for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what what absolutely floored me is Alan's reverence for this. I figured as a, a classical music expert that this would be the one thing he'd look at and say, well, that's this music concrete crap, this, you know, tape loops and backwards this, it's junk, there's no musical shape to it. And yet here's a guy who actually is a musicologist and knows what he's talking about and just how he is so reverent and so in his examination of that fascinates me. So now why don't we turn to our resident musician, Craig Bartok, lead guitarist with heart, producer, composer, and also the man who provided us with our theme music theme, for the show. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely fab theme. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd like to basically talk with Craig about, you know, as we talk, talked with Alan about putting the Beatles as composers into context and John Lennon specifically, in this case, I'd like to know from Craig how he sees John's evolution as a musician. And again, within that context, where he was at in 1968. There are certain parts of this album and certain performances that I feel that they are really at their pinnacle. And they don't even sound like the Beatles. There's like the, uh, we'll get more into it in detail, but like Lennon's bass playing on Helter Skelter, soloed, isolated, is nothing so short of amazing. And just the way it he's using the fender six string bass and um and going through an amp and it just it really helps propel the the lunacy and the franticness of that song So getting to John Lennon and, and John Lennon's White Album, um, right. just tell us about how his musicianship, his abilities as you know, a guitarist or keyboard player, whatever it was, impacted his songwriting and how that evolved during the White Album. I think probably one of the biggest things that stands out for me is the finger picking that, uh, that Donovan taught him. Um, up to this point, when you think of John's playing, okay, if I backtrack and we think of the two main storytellers in the Beatles uh, up to this point with Paul and, and John, Paul already had developed years ago a very unique style of, of acoustic playing and finger picking. Um, 
it's demonstrated on Mother Nature's Son and even further back on, on yesterday. He what, he what he tends to do is he, he plays the bass note with his thumb and then he takes his fingers and he, he usually takes his, his first or second, third finger and he kind of strums up or down with it. So it gets that bling, ding, 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 ding. So he has he's figured out a way to accompany himself with an acoustic guitar. Up to this point, John's only tool was strumming, which it can be demonstrated on You've Got to Hide Your Love Away or some of those songs, his more personal songs. Up until this point, when when he learned this actual finger picking, he didn't really have the ability to be a storyteller by himself without the band that Paul had already developed. So a song like Julia wouldn't have necessarily have had the same impact if John had strummed it, as opposed to learning and figuring out how to do that finger picking. makes a very big difference in the personalness of his songs. Um, and you can see that very used very wisely throughout the entire White Album. It just gives John a very important weapon in his arsenal as, as a storyteller. Like uh, Dear Prudence, for example, the way that song starts out with the finger picking, if it was strumming, yeah, it would be cool, but, but the way that finger picking works, it's just magical. I think John's songs overall have a more ambient sound to them. Um, 
songs like I'm So Tired, You're Blues, that type of thing on this album. Um, so you hear John's rhythm guitar, um, and it has shades of what's to come on Let It Be, that the tone of the casino, um, I'm So Tired, it almost has the same tone of I Dig a Pony and some of his rhythm parts that would be coming up after the White Album. Um, and he's his guitar playing on Honey Pie, his solo is brilliant. Honey Pie, come back to me. As a kid, I never would have figured out that that was John playing that solo. Uh, he's, his tone is dead on, and um, what he does is perfect for the song. I, it's, it, it actually kind of reminds me of when you listen to, um, you see the, the Beatles on the David Frost show, and they're doing the theme song um, jokingly before they, they, do the, uh, they do the performance of Hey Jude. It's basically the same tone. It's the Fender, and it's the Casino, it's the um, rhythm pickup, the trebles rolled off, but that whole little jazz thing they kind of the do. The phony that, Barney that Kessel. Take on right? it. Exactly. Um, it's, it's really close to what he's doing on Honey Pie, but he nails it. He just nails it. As far as his actual playing goes and his tone, you can just hear the if you, I'm so tired um, and uh, and your blues and and the, the things that he did that were more live feeling more more of a live feel to him. You can draw a pretty direct parallel between that and Let It Be. A few months later, it's very very it's very linear there. Some of the adjectives that you employed when we were discussing you know the White Album and John's contributions were. Confident, bold, introspective, full of pain. Yes. Um, tell us more about that. This is the time when he's really not afraid to say anything. He's got. He's realized that, like with songs like "I Am the Walrus," that he can pretty much just say whatever he wants to say, and it's going to fly. And uh, on the White Album, you just look at if you just take his songs and you 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 strip away everybody else's songs you got one hell of an album here and and you've got some um you look at his subject matter and um there is a lot of pain i mean there is a lot of pain in julia there's a lot of melancholy um i mean there's a, there's there's anger in um in Bungalow Bill, it's just like the whole story about the the, the hunter and, and India and all that, yeah. uh, which I'm sure you can get into. But it's kind of like, yeah, you know, what an asshole this guy is to go out, you know, to, to the double standard of being here to meditate and then go out and hunt lions. Um, it's there's a there's just you know Lennon is really digging. He's really digging into his soul, and but also he's. You kind of don't know whether he's taking you along for a ride or whether it's real, which is kind of the best way an artist can be. It's like it gives he gives you enough rope to where you can make your own decisions with these songs. Now, in terms of John's vocals, you and I, Craig, have discussed before, you know, how, oh, yeah. how his voice changed through the years. So why don't you, from your perspective say you know how it had evolved up to 1968 
and then where he's at on the White Album as a vocalist? Well, I think John's vocal seems to really parallel his confidence and his lack of confidence and his emotional state. He um, he just, on earlier albums, you just listen to songs like Money and, um, uh, and Twist and Shout or anything like that, and um, he is so full, he's so cocky and so full of confidence. And then as I think... Uh, we're we're starting to get into the help era and he started to have a lot of doubts about who he was, doubts about fame and if this wasn't doing it for him. You just, you hear that in his voice. So he's still singing rock. I mean, he's like, um, like your blues is great, uh, but does it have the same confidence that money has? And we're not talking that many years here, but you're thinking about what he's been through. As and acid, he per- said, also destroyed his ego. Yeah, well, maybe, but... Um, I think it came back. I, it grew back. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just, he's, he's an artist. He's a true artist. And, and I can't imagine being in that, that, that shitstorm that was Beatlemania and and being taken everybody wanting a piece of you and and being in your I mean I think that we're all probably at that age for you know 23 25 20 you know that that era that age we all as as males are probably at our most confident and to have that rocked down to your soul like like John had and just doubt everything. Go and say, okay, I want it all. I, you know, I want the women. I want the drugs. I want, you know, I want the rock and roll. I want to be, I want all these things. I want to meet Elvis. And you get all that. And then it's like, where do you go from here? And, and that's really reflective in John's voice. And so he's got a rock edge, but there's something very um, introspective and um, tentative about his voice from you know, right before the White Album on. And I just, I find it to be very fascinating that it just parallels who he is as a person and who he thought he was and maybe who he wasn't. Now, do you still hear that in Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey, where he, to me, he really lets rip on that vocal. Are you still hearing a difference between that John Lennon and the Twist and Shout guy? Yeah, I am. Well, and the other, you know, the other thing too is the, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkeys. A double-tracked vocal and a very sloppily double-tracked vocal, um, and those other songs, uh, "Money" and "Twist and Shout." It's just Lennon on a mic, and he's he has uh, everything to prove, and he's going to. Um, and everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkeys. Got a lot of instrumentation on it. Um, think about, okay, I think a better example would be the high note at the end of, um, happiness is a warm gun, right? where he had to build up all that confidence to hit that note. Happiness is a warm, yes it is. It's not that high of a note. And, um, if you think about like, uh, like this boy and you go back to that and, it's not that big of a jump between those notes, but 
it's just that he he put himself out there. I mean, he he said, okay, the band's going to stop here, and I'm going to hit this high note. He didn't necessarily have to do that, but he did. And there's still there's still a um, a vulnerability. There's not a vulnerability in um, this boy. He's he's going to tackle it, and he's going to tackle like songs like "If I Fell," and all, that's a double track vocal as well. But um, but he's out there and. Uh, He's he's vulnerable. He's very vulnerable in the White Album. And so do, do you think that that is lesser being vulnerable or is it just different? Um, it's, you know, yeah, I'm glad I got both Johns. So it's different, I would say, um, because his his songs were all about confidence. The word I kept thinking was fragile. There's, there's a fragility right. to, um, you know, him... And you can almost see it in the pick the portrait that they gave you, the color portrait, that look on his face. I'm sure he was on acid or something, but but, but there's right, that sort right. of stare. That's it's not the look, it's not the sneer that we were used to. It's, it's that's true. It's very much a what, what am I doing here? Where am I? You know, almost uh, almost lost. Uh, Happiness is a warm gun. His history of rock and roll song. He said that each movement was representative to him of a style of rock and roll. And uh, did you ever notice that as a musician? I mean, can you comment on that? Oh, absolutely. He's, he's, he's uh, totally right about that. I mean, that song is, when we can, th- once again, we go back to that picking. It's the way it starts out. It's the, the Donovan style of picking, which is, it very starts out very personal. You have no idea where you're going. And keep in mind that this song we're only talking about a song that's two minutes and 42 seconds long. And think about all that's, that would be the length of a single back in those days. Um, think about all of the different movements and passages that happen in that song. And I think the one thing that when you talk about the, the eras, when it ends with the happiness is a warm gun part, it's that standard, um, it's the standard 50s, early 60s, uh, C, A minor to F to G. It's the same, uh, basically the same chords as This Boy and a few other, uh, you know, like tell, um, um, Sleepwalk. Uh, there's a lot of songs that had that same um, progression. It's a very, very well-traveled. So it's old school, um, it's old school rock. And, but it's also... God, that song, I, it, it blows me away. It, that song still, I think, is one of the Beatles' best performances. I agree. Uh, something was was really, really pulling them in a, in a different direction in that song. Um, and, and think about the, the masterpiece of production it is, but it doesn't have the gimmicks of the previous albums of, like, of Magical Mystery Tour and uh, and Sgt. Pepper's and, and going back to um, uh, Revolver. It's just the gimmicks are with traditional instruments. It's just got great guitar tones and and great performances and um, and each one of those movements is is really a gem in itself. So John is absolutely right about that. I was looking at the songs individually and. Um, I was looking at um, Bungalow Bill, and there's a lot of Mellotron on uh, 
this album, and and especially on that song, like uh, there was all speculation when I was a kid about the the fast uh, guitar intro, and who did it. I mean, obviously we knew it wasn't George, and um, um, we know Tommy Tedesco didn't walk in for <laughs> you know for twenty minutes and play this on the wrecking crew. So you know, on the exactly, and so but it's just a sample, and I loaded up on my Mellotron, I loaded up. I mean, it's just a sample. So um, it's it's they just uh, decided to to uh, to put it in that way, and I believe Chris Thomas played the Mellotron. Um, on that song, and the 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 mellotron in the verses is just um, the the pick mandolin, which I'll just demonstrate right here. Saxon mother son. Yeah, now your Mellotron is a virtual Mellotron, correct? It, it yeah, is. I was going to say uh, they because they just couldn't recover that quickly. <laughs> if you ever had a real one, I had a real one for yeah. years, and they were like little old people. I mean, you know, as maybe in the day when they were new, they weren't quite as temperamental. Yeah. But uh, they are remaking them these days. But everything is digital. I, yeah, I know, I know. I know. Yeah. I sold mine and took my wife to Morocco with the profit uh, years ago. Yeah, that would. That would be the thing to do, definitely. Um, and uh, there's uh, yeah, uh, another interesting use of the Mellotron. I always thought that um, the string section at the end of Glass Onion was interesting. Um, the the little string part. Now, there's a setting on the Mark II Mellotron, which are uh, they're sad strings. And I almost thought that it sounded like John wanted something like this, but they couldn't get it to work. And maybe that's when George Martin. Oh yeah. And they came up with this. Yeah, the the ending of uh, Glass Onion, but the the sad strings sort of sound like this. I was about to to jump into Watcher of the Skies uh, by. Genesis. That, that's that's the exact setting they used on. Uh, they were other big Mellotron. Right, people. you might remember that song. Absolutely. Um, nothing maybe fit in, but it could have been one of those things where they wanted to try it, and George Martin said, "Well, I don't know. You know, it's, 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 it, it'd be better if I just scored a little something, something, and put it on there." I want to say on air that you know you really added texture to our show, providing that electrifying theme music. I really want to thank you for that. I, oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, it's yeah awesome. I love it. Yep, and and we get we've had such great feedback. Oh, it's my my pleasure, guys. Absolutely. Hey, you know it's really great that we will be having Craig more often to uh, help us out with uh, that aspect, the working musicians aspect of uh, of these different things that we're going to be examining. Not just the Beatles, too. I mean, obviously, our next show is going to be all over the place isn't it it most certainly is keep people in suspenders uh i do that as often as possible but uh you know i don't look as good in suspenders anymore i really don't want to know about it 
it has to do with my Vegas period. So what shall we play out with? I'll give you a choice. How about either What's a New Mary Jane or The Revolution from the promo video? Oh, you know what? That's an easy one. As, as much fun as Mary Jane is, I think we have to go with the live version of Revolution because it combines some elements of Revolution 1 with the fast version on the single, and it was recorded live on a beautiful day in the fall of 68 with, uh, well, actually, it was a beautiful day, but it was a frosty day, wasn't it? And, and Well, it was also a sunny day for the Beatles because it was a day after Ringo had returned to the group. This has been a blast as usual. I can't wait for the next one. And that is author extraordinaire Richard Buskin. And that is former Vegas crooner Eric Taros.
The Beatles, Naked. House production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok.
Let's hear it <laughs> before we get taken away.